This morning we look at Psalm 51. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Evangelist, uh, well-known evangelist Louis Palau told the story of a mother who once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offence twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy and he stared the woman's son. Now this morning we look at Psalm 51 which is the best known of what are called the penitential psalms. Uh, there are seven of these and, uh, and this is the best known. And, and what is the background? Because a lot of the psalms, most of the psalms have a background and, but you have to dig a little bit deeper to understand a little bit of the background. But, but this one you don't have to search too far because it is all there right underneath the title of, of the psalm. And he says this, he says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now that's not a very nice title, is it? It just tells you the story, warts and all, about what it's about. And if I had written this psalm, I'd say, well, can you just not mention that, please? Because, you know, I want to make it obvious. But the Bible... As it is, the Word of God tells the story, warts and all. We are the ones that go and edit stuff and cut and paste and all of this, but the Bible tells the story as it is. So what happened to David? Well, David wasn't short of wives. Eight wives are mentioned in the Bible. One of them was Michal, the daughter of the previous king, King Saul. But their marriage was on the rocks. David becomes infatuated with the wife of one of his old friends and trusted generals called Uriah. Their affair led to her becoming pregnant. And as her husband Uriah was away fighting wars, this was going to prove Embarrassing. So David tries to cover it up. And after a few attempts, David sent orders for Uriah to be stationed on the very front line of the war so that he could be killed. And sure enough, the battle did not go well, especially when his own troops retreated at the order of the king and Uriah was indeed killed. After Uriah had died, Bathsheba became David's wife. And I'm sure that David thought that he got away with it. But the Bible tells us the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The Lord did not let him get away with it. 
The prophet that God used was Nathan. And through a wonderful parable, he comes to the king and brings David to the point where the king himself unwittingly proclaims his own sentence. And you can read the bit of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. But up to this point, up to this point, David thought that he could get away with murder. And it would appear that he did so, but not, but not before God. 3,000 years later, this psalm continues to speak to us powerfully. We are living in times when people have stopped believing in the nature of sin. We reclassify it to psychological conditions, to we rename it, we call them mistakes, we let down our guard, uh, a misunderstanding, a weak moment. And, and, and so the, the firm categories that we once had of right and wrong no longer exist. We have different names now. Many churches are following this path. Many Bible colleges are following this path. Listen to the sermons on the internet. Listen to some of your own preachers and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Now this is what Richard Niebuhr said a few decades ago about the problem of modern Christianity. He was quite prophetic in what he said. And I quote, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Whatever we might think otherwise, according to the Bible, sin is a very, very serious business. We minimise sin, we minimise the cross. We minimise the cross, we minimise the sovereignty of God, we minimise grace. And the downward spiral continues. And what happens ultimately is that people prove to be more and more rebellious against God. And this has very serious consequences in individuals, in family, in society, in a whole nation and society itself. So Psalm 51 is, the, is, is, is a call to us, I believe, to understand, to, to go back to, to, to the roots of what the problem is. And I hope that this morning serves as, as a wake-up call to all of us so that we do not let down our guard. We do not get misguided. We do not get sidetracked and, 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 and sweet-talk this whole or sugarcoat what is a very serious problem. Psalm 51 is the account of David's dealing with this particular sin. David made a mess of it, but God had to bring him back through his servant, through the prophet, to a point where David had to see himself, the reality of what he had done. 
And I need to say that many people find this passage difficult because the funny thing about human beings is that you read the papers and somebody does something wrong and the papers come, come on the perpetrator like a, like a policeman, like a judge, like an executioner many times. And Christians, we find ourselves in this very frequently, in this whole thing. So we're unable to see how it is that God could forgive David by allowing him to continue as king and even find it hard to understand how it is possible that the Bible later on would declare David a man after God's own heart. Okay, let's let's bring a bit home. Let's say that Liverpool Baptist is looking for a new pastor and a guy called David applies to be a pastor. We know his record, his uh, adultery, uh, murder. Um, would would he get past the uh, the committee? Okay, maybe not. All right, let's say that he's uh, there's an election going on. We just had one and the press gets hold of his background. That, uh, you know what the story would sound like, the front pages? Scandal breaks out! Murderer! Adulterer! And he wants to lead the Conservatives or the Progressives, I don't care. He's going to lead the nation? Are you serious? And he goes to church. He's there worshipping with his hands raised and he's writing all these psalms and all these. Are you, are you kidding me? A man after God's own heart, eh? However, it is important to realise that even though David is forgiven, David's life will never be the same. Besides the very high price of the death of his child, David will endure the pain and anguish of a family life that has forever been derailed by his own actions. Last week I said that Bob Hawke was, uh, was remembered as, as a good Prime Minister. Bad husband, bad father, but a good Prime Minister. I think we could probably say the same thing about King David. Bad father, bad husband, but a brilliant king. Because you see, sin always leaves scars. Sin always leaves scars, deep scars. So let us learn the lessons with that long introduction. Let us learn the lessons from Psalm 51. And if you've got pens, if you've got uh, some way of recording this, uh, it's, it's, it's a very helpful outline because I'm, I'm going to go through quite a lot of stuff that I want you to, to take in, all right? 
and even in your, your own quiet time as you, as you go home and, and revisit this psalm uh, and, uh, and the other penitential psalms that, God willing, this, this will speak to you. The first thing in verses 1 to 7 is that we have a plea for mercy. Let's read this again. Have mercy on, on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Funny that he took the prophet Nathan to bring it before him. Now he knows. Against you, you only have I seen and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now in these verses, in this, these words here, we, we have sin described in at least three ways through David's words. Firstly, he understands that sin is a crime before God. He says, blot out my transgressions. Transgressions happen when you cross a boundary. You trespass. In verse 3 he says, for I know my transgressions and, and my sin is always before me. It is good. It is good to know where the boundary is. The Bible sets out before us the boundaries. Society makes it very fuzzy. The old black and white is all 50 shades of grey now. Not according to the Bible. The Bible tells us you cannot do this. It is good to know where the boundary is and more importantly, know that you have crossed that boundary. You would hate to be building your home and then the surveyor comes later on and finds out that half your house is on your neighbour's side, wouldn't it? So it's very helpful to know where the boundary is. In God's eyes, sin is an illegal act, a violation, an act of lawlessness and rebellion. It is a crime before God, even though society has different categories, even though the law of the land doesn't think too much about adultery, obviously, according to God, it's bad, very, very bad. It is, in fact, a crime. Secondly, he understands that sin is like an ugly stain, a defilement upon the soul. He cries, he, say, he cries out, he says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Even though eventually the act fades into the past, the dirty defiling stain remains a stigma upon the heart. So he cries out and asks to be delivered from these things. Cleanse me, wash me. From my sin. In, in verse 7, he pleads to be cleansed with hyssop. And, and uh, during the 
the seven words of Jesus from the cross, we spoke a little bit about hyssop and the, the connection to the Old Testament. Hyssop was a small plant that could be easily used as a, as a brush. In the temple ceremonies, the priest used it to sprinkle blood. In Exodus chapter 12, the people of Israel were told to use hyssop to brush the doorways with the blood so that when the angel of death came over, that they would pass over the homes that were painted with the blood. And on the cross, what happened on the cross? On the cross it was hyssop that the soldiers used to wet Jesus' lips when he cried out, I am thirsty. So this hyssop of which David speaks is an expression of God's mercy, of his of what he uses to, to cleanse us, purify, to forgive. Third sin is a sin. No. Really? Is a sin. It is an act against God. He says here, against you, you only have I seen and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I'm sure that David doesn't ignore the fact that others have been damaged, deeply damaged and hurt by what he had done. He gives his, his sin against his own wife, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, his friend, against his own people. But ultimately, whoever you think you have sinned against, ultimately it all leads, it all comes before God. That's why he says ultimately his sin, all his sin was, still is, ultimately against God. That's why we call it a sin. And fourthly, sin is part of our fallen nature. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now some read this passage as though sexual intercourse was in itself some kind of sin. Uh, you read Catholic theology and that's pretty much what they think of, of it. But he does not mean here that there is anything wrong with the act by which he was conceived. Uh, children, you need to ask mum and dad about this, uh, of how he came to be. Gee, where did you come from? That's why. It's not the water, it's not the stalk. Within the marriage relationship, intercourse is blessed, honoured by God. It is his gift to the marriage. One flesh. What he's saying is that the act of conception introduced him into a tarnished, sinful humanity. goes back to the garden. Original sin. He was born into a sinful race in which sin is already deeply embedded. Now there are many today who 
challenge the doctrine of original sin. They challenge the doctrine of total depravity. Let's think about this. Who taught you to sin? Where did you learn to lie? Did you go to some, some, some school to learn to cheat and to deceive? Every parent, simple observation, just watch your kids and you know that they will do these things naturally. You want proof of total depravity? Just have kids and watch them. Those innocent little darlings. Because you see what happens is that they are doing what comes naturally. Part of the sinful nature. Born into a sinful race. And, and therefore, the rebellious nature is present from the tiniest infant. Now, I know you go read the textbooks on education on, and you go to teachers are taught at the colleges and the universities and we have a few teachers here with us. Do you do any of this stuff at any of the universities? Do they talk about total depravity? No, don't think so. Don't think so because they look at the environment. They look at the influence from mom and dad and television and you see, we've dismissed God's word. Therefore, we have to find other excuses. How do you, how do you solve something that is, that is in there? It's, it's, it's innate, part of our nature. That's why David cries out, he says. And, and the basis of his plea for mercy, the plea for mercy is this. I have no other basis. I have no other basis to, to, to cry, to plead. On what basis? According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion. Like that woman who came before Napoleon. If mercy is deserved, it wouldn't be mercy now, would it? What we do deserve is justice. So, okay, please don't apply your justice because I'm doomed if that happens. According to what? What is the basis for our plea? According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. He deserves nothing from God. And God is not bound to forgive him. God doesn't have to forgive him. God doesn't have to send his son to die on a cross. He doesn't have to. He didn't have to. And, and, and some people are never able to, to realise forgiveness because they think they deserve it. That if they do, bang, 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 they do all these things, then they will deserve God's forgiveness. We cannot. And then you find that all of the religions of the world, except Christianity, are based on works, the things you do. So then God owes you. He doesn't know you anything. But David knows better. He realises that only because of God's love 
does he have any right to even ask? A plea for mercy. Then we come to a plea for joy, verses 8 to 12. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out, blot out all my iniquity. Create, we know these words, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I know that many of us might struggle to define joy in, in the biblical sense because we, we tend to mix it so readily with happiness and, and all the, the having a laugh, the, 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 the attitude or the, the sensation, the feeling of being happy. But whether we understand it or not, we certainly know we know when it is gone. Even though we might not define how, what it is, we know when it's gone. And we certainly cannot experience true joy in anything while we are, are deep in our sin. If you're a child of God, you know it's there and it's going to eat away. Even though you may continue to believe that the that if you just, in order to bring that joy, you just continue in that sin. Continue to cross that boundary. And you do it again and again and again. And you think that that's the thing that's going to bring you joy. In verse 8 we read, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Where is this joy going to come from? The answer is in verse 10 where he pleads, Create in me a pure or a clean heart, O God. So David goes back to the language of Genesis the language of creation itself. The word create used here is the word bara and it is only ever used of God in the Bible. Yes, I know that we humans, we tend to very, be very loose in the word create. Look at your creation. You do a painting, you do a, a sculpture or you invent something and say, this is, this is your creation. Or even a, a song. You write a song, you put music and everything. So this is your creation. But the word, what you've done is simply put notes together, words together, and you, like, a, like a good cook, you use up all those ingredients, put it in the oven, and there it is, voila, and it is beautiful. But in the Bible, to create something, because it is use of God, it means to create something out of nothing, out of nothing at all. 
There are no previous ingredients. Nothing. Human beings are good at inventing, arranging, remodeling, putting this piece there and that and everything else and you come up with something. But try as we may, we can't bring into being something that never existed before. Only God, only God can do that. That is bara. Create. What David is really praying for is a clean mind. Only God can give him that. This is because in biblical times, the, the, he says, creating me a clean heart. What he's saying is creating me a clean mind. Because in biblical times, the heart was the, the, the seat, the organ of, of, of thought. And just think about, just think of the memories that continue to replay themselves in your head over and over again at one o'clock in the morning, at two o'clock in the morning of your past. Just think of the stuff that uh, has happened 20, 30, 40 years ago that continues to influence you negatively in the present, dragging you down. And when you feel down, it drags you even further down. And therefore, to, to pray for a clean mind is to call for a, a cleaning out of those, those memories. They, those memories could be abuse. They could be self-pity. They could be lust. They could be hurt, failures. A clean mind is a, is a new capacity to, to see things anew by the renewing of your mind, to, to think, to see, to react, to to clean you from the muck of the past so that you're, you're able to, to live in, in, in a new joy so that God infuses you with life. And we look at verse 11 and think, why is David asking God not to take away his salvation? Is, is that really what he's asking? Can salvation be lost? Well, not at all. In Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, we read, we read this was our first passage this morning. We are taught that in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, we are sealed, we are the residents of the Holy Spirit, we are children of God. These realities are not temporary, they're not based upon your feelings. These, the realities last forever. The Holy Spirit will not leave. Once we are born again, our life is in Christ. It is sealed for eternity. The problem is that, the problem is us. We don't believe it and we don't live as if we know for sure that we are loved by God. That assurance tends to come and go a bit whimsical according to how we feel. That's why, again, we read, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And, and this is a bit different to the song that we, that we sing. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. No, the verse says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I cannot save myself. You are the one that saves so why are there so many joyless Christians? 
Perhaps a better question might be, where is the sin that robs the joy? Where is it leaking? Plug the hole. So that you can again be full of joy. The third point from verses 13 to 19, these are the results of a restored life. This is what it says. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit or a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And your good, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. When we have come to terms with our inner condition and have received the healing and and the forgiveness from God, there are these responses by which we measure, three responses that David gives us by which we measure the, the depth of our restoration. First of all is a witness, being a witness, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. We have a testimony, we have a story that we want to tell others of the Lord's mercy in our life. This is what teaching other transgressors is all about. We share the good news of forgiveness of sin. David moves, you see, beyond himself and self-pity and seeks to Influence based upon the forgiveness that he has received, he wants to influence others in their walk, the stuff that they are struggling with. So if you have experienced God's mercy, you have something to say to transgressors whose hearts are still broken, are still failing. You have a voice. You have a word. You can speak to them. With John Newton, you can also say, I once was blind, but now I see. What is another response? It's worship, verse 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Isn't that good? I have lips, I have a tongue. I have a heart and I have a mouth that will declare your praise. I can do all these other things with my mouth which are not honouring to you. But let me use my mouth to declare your praise. We sing and praise him for his love and mercy. Worship is always a response it is a response to God's mercy to us. David 
was a thousand years. He lived a thousand years before the cross of Jesus Christ to know exactly the full extent of forgiveness and grace of his own descendant, right? But he was a prophet, the Bible tells us. So he was able to see ahead, even though he probably didn't fully comprehend even what he was writing in Psalm 22 and some of the other prophetic psalms. Yet he still managed to, to compose because it is the same God. It is the same God and, and wrote so many songs of praise because of, God, because of God's amazing grace. How many more reasons then to us 2,000 years after the cross to be able to praise our God for what he has done? May God give us, each of us, a spiritual courage to look within ourselves, to confront our sin and to experience the joy of our salvation, to learn to worship him every day in spirit and in truth. And lastly, another response that comes out of these these verses is sacrifice, verses 16 and 17. Now, at first it appears that David is, is sort of contradicting himself when he says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. Then two verses later he says, you shall be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness with burnt offering. So, does God want offerings or not? Does he want a sacrifice or not? The answer is yes and no. The answer is actually in the type of sacrifice that we are going to offer. God didn't need the animals offered to him in sacrifice. Hebrews says that quite well. He says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Why? That was the old system because it was pointing to a perfect system, a perfect way through Jesus Christ. So the once for all payment that Jesus would make with his own blood on the cross. What mattered was the attitude of those making the sacrifices. If the offerings, if you went to the temple and you offered a sacrifice but you were somehow just sort of removed, you brought the bull, you brought the goat, whatever it was, if your heart was not right, then it really didn't matter. The ritual was a mockery. That's why David wrote, the sacrifices of God are what? Broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. I see a lot of, in the world in which we live, even among Christians, I don't see a lot of contrite hearts. I see a lot of pride. I see a lot of hubris and... uh, It's almost like a sense of entitlement. What happened to the to the broken spirit, the broken and contrite heart that it's it's if you come before God, don't come full of pride like the like the Pharisee and the publican at the temple. Have mercy on me, O God. And people need to understand the nature of sacrifice. No, we don't go to the temple and buy a bull and 
and sacrifices and have the blood everywhere. That's, we don't have to do that anymore. But our, our lives become a sacrifice, an aroma pleasing to him. Your service in the ministry, your service even complying with legislation, the stuff that we're going to do today, all the hoops we're going to jump in order just to serve. Waking up early and putting stuff away and, and witnessing and caring for somebody who obviously doesn't deserve it and, and might even say nasty things to you, whether it's in a workplace or a workmate and everything else. Why am I putting up with this? Because of Jesus. That's your sacrifice. That's your sacrifice. Let me finish with this story from a very well-known missionary. You might... Uh, recall these words and I quote people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa can that be called a sacrifice which is simply acknowledging a great debt we owe to our God which we can never repay is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward in in health activity, the, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, foregoing the common convenience of this life, these may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing compared with the glory which shall be later to be revealed in and through us. No, I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. End of quote. David Livingston. These are the sacrifices. And according to David Livingston, they're not even a sacrifice. What we owe to our Saviour can never be repaid. May we serve him in love and take seriously the grace that has been poured on our lives for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.